0: welcome to another episode of the work life podcast to find out more about the work life hub and to listen to other episodes please go to www.worklifehub.com
1: welcome to another episode of the work life hub podcast i am your host agnes Uheretsky. if this is the first time that you are tuning in Let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Work Life Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter, at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page, or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the WorkLife Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and this is actually the first time We're recording a podcast episode with two speakers, two guests, not just one. So today I have uh, with me, with us, Heather Boucher. Hi, Heather. Hello. It's
0: happy. Glad to be here.
1: And also Maureen Conway. Hi, Maureen. Hi, Agnes. Thanks so much for having us. So um, I'll quickly introduce our two guests uh, and then we're going to go into the discussion without... um, spending too much time taking it away from the exciting discussion. So Heather Boucher is the executive director and chief economist at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And she's also senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Her research focuses on uh, economic inequality and public policy, specifically employment, social policy, family economic well-being. And she is the author of uh, a book that just came out now in April 2016 called finding time the economics of work-life conflict and this is what we're going to be talking about mainly and maureen conway is the vice president of the aspen institute she's the executive director of the institute's economic opportunities program the eop and maureen founded the EOP's workforce strategies initiative and she's headed up workforce research at the aspen institute since 1999 so going straight to, to the book and, and some of the questions, uh, my first question to Heather. Um, firstly, I have, I, I'm quite interested in the choosing of the title because you chose the economics of work-life conflict. So not focusing on the balance bit, but on the conflict. And you are making basically the economic and business case for why especially U.S. families, are just struggling with a chronic lack of time. And, you know, you're really trying to make a point that this is not a soft, it's not a mommy issue, it's a very hardcore um, uh, economic issue. So could you just maybe give a a, quite a brief, I know it would be challenging, but just a a brief insight, just a taste of of perhaps your thinking or the motives uh, for this.
0: Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll touch on two things that you just said. Um, first, I, I specifically did call it the economics of work-life conflict. I wanted to stress that um, this is about people's time um, and the encroachment on time um, of many jobs and the inability of people to find solutions that allow them to address day-in and day-out conflicts. I know a lot of folks talk about balance or other things, but I think for many people, um, balance is just a, it's not existent yet. So um, I think it's better to focus on the fact that there is this problem and we need to fix it. Um and, uh, and and two, you know, I called it the economics of, because what I strive to do in the book is to put issues around time and work-life conflict into their broader economic co- context. So a lot of times when we talk about the economics of these issues, what we're really talking about is just the business case and not even the whole business case, but just the short-term immediate interest of a particular firm. Rather than understanding that um, the inability to address these conflicts isn't just about um, uh, the, the, the business decision today, it's about labor supply, job retention, um, productivity, consumption and demand, um, profitability that um, these issues really have far-reaching economic implications that affect the entire economy not just one business and so we need to be looking at the broader economic context Um, and so i do that in the book laying out the economic argument i look at how these challenges play out for families at the top the middle and the bottom of the income distribution i show where there are commonalities where there are differences and then i go through policy solutions um, that, that really seek to find um, uh, solutions that it can address both the places where people across the income distribution have the same problem, but also articulating where those challenges are different and the policy um, needs to adapt.
1: Thank you very much for, for giving us this this insight. And and I just couldn't agree more that these are, you know, very long-term um, economic uh, arguments and, and something that th- there's just not, enough leadership to commit and and of course we've seen this coming out of the the economic crisis and you know also in europe as well that just austerity austerity cutting even back on some of the actually fantastic achievements we had in a lot of the european countries on childcare, on maternity leave on on all of these supports so my next question to maureen uh maureen you and especially um your program the institute you're looking at um employment and and the workforce and strategies so did you find uh, uh, answers in in uh, Heather's book to to some of the questions around the the great inequality of opportunities that there is for for jobs and and quality of life for US families um Thank you, Agnes, and, and yeah, I uh, well,
2: those are those are big questions to answer. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure I would say Heather covered them all. Um, but there's a lot in Heather's book that I really appreciated um, in terms of informing those questions and thinking about um, not only work-life um, conflict, as, as she outlined so well, but she also really frames how work and life are so intimately connected and I and I really appreciated the the way she she um, she put things in the context of the economy. but she also reminds her readers that the economy isn't just about businesses and business success. Um, and it's not just a and we we can't judge the success of the economy just on whether businesses are profitable, that some of these things that we think of as sort of, You know maybe nice to have you know in terms of oh wouldn't it be nice if families were profitable but i mean families were successful but you know but then you know it's it 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 doesn't have to be that we're trading off our family successful versus our business successful but part of a successful economy is when both are successful um so I really appreciated how she how she framed that and how we how we can think about the success of our economy, not only by a successful business sector, but also by a successful family and consumer sector, um, a, a successful sort of civic sector. And, you know, all of those pieces need need to work together. Um, so and then particularly for the for the work that I do, you know, I think it's really important to think about the. Um, those work supports and, and and those then are seen more in the reframing of childcare and healthcare as investments in work and successful work rather than in sort of expenditures on things that people maybe want, but maybe we can't afford them anymore. So, so I think that way of rethinking it lets us see how um, some of the policy solutions Heather outlines in her book really make sense if we want to think about what a successful economy should look like.
1: Absolutely. And and maybe now uh, going back to Heather, um, I I also particularly like the fact that you you put an an accent, you put the stress on saying that these work-life supports, they need to be fair. They need to be distributed, just as you also said, across all income groups and, and across society. And we have seen now over the past year a number of highly mediatized news, especially in the US, from tech companies about giving unlimited vacation, uh, unlimited or one-year um, parental leaves. And isn't there this danger that um, if, if these um, options or these benefits become available only for part? of the working population, that they will even further open these inequality scissors.
0: I could not agree with you more. And in fact, I mean, that your question, Agnes, is exactly why we need policy intervention. Um, You know, it's really interesting in some areas of labor standards, uh, we require by law that if an employer provides a benefit to one set of workers or to one worker that they have to provide them to all. They have to have a uniform policy. So um, we do that in the area of health care and pensions so that there are rules about how big the disparity can be across your, your workforce. We don't do that um, for the kinds of policies that, quite frankly, um, as Maureen said, you know, really help make it possible for workers to get to, into work and to stay at work. So um, issues around paid leave, issues around paid sick days, issues around um, scheduling predictability and flexibility. These can be quite um, uh, 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 quite um, uh, individually uh, administered in um, in workplaces. We hear a lot about how I mean, sort of the old adage goes that people join firms and leave managers, and in no small mm-hmm. part they leave managers um, because of some of these issues of so the managers are treating me fairly. Um, and and one aspect of that is often around hours and flexibility and scheduling and other um, uh, workplace perks, and um, and whether or not somebody feels that they've been treated fairly. So. I think these are all very much connected, but I just want to touch on the last, the the other thing that you noted, which is about this issue of fairness, you know, in a world of work that is really designed for workers who have that stay at home wife. Um, right? Most jobs, um, employers want um, employees to be highly dedicated. They want the employee to have to cope with any sort of flexibility on their own. Um, The employer wants the employee to show up when they want on whatever terms they want and never have to stay at home for a sick kid. That is no longer the reality for the vast majority of the American workforce. And um, for employers to still act as though that for the case is really patently unfair to people when they have those um, care issues that they need to sort out. And we need to start thinking of that as just as fundamental to what we mean by fairness as the other things that we have now accepted are journey um, to what we think about workplace fairness. Uh,
1: Maureen, would you like to add something? Um
2: well I think i I couldn't agree more with with what Heather was saying about sort of the the fairness and i I think um, I guess maybe i'll I'll just um, uh, re- repeat a little of what I was saying before and that and that I do think again it's 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 fairness but it's also not just a matter of fairness. I think we have when um, as you were saying Agnes, when you sort of have one set of workers who have one policies and you have another set of workers who have another policies there's a big divide. And I think this big divide in people's lived experience of work makes it hard for them to really understand how they can be working together, right? Because um, they don't really understand. um, And and I see this regularly, uh, working with low and moderate income workers who are sort of trying to get into work and people not understanding why do they not behave the way I expect them to? Why do they have these problems with childcare? Why do they have these problems with showing up to work? When when, you know, our public transportation systems aren't designed to get them there on time, um, when the child care centers aren't open at the times they need them to be open for the purposes of work, right? So we're not thinking about um, people's different reliance on different systems. And then, you know, we're sort of because the the lived experience of work is so different. We're sort of at cross purposes of how do we work together?
1: Absolutely. And um, what do you think, maybe a question again, back to Heather and then Maureen, what are the barriers? Because in, as you outline uh, in the book, Heather, I mean, there's been you know, ideas about uh, universal childcare policies in the US since the 70s or, you know, so so as you say, it's not uh, a pie in the sky um, uh, innovation that we need. It's not like it hasn't been invented yet. (laughs) and of course, we see this from from quite successful countries. Of course, everybody points to Norway and Sweden and Denmark. But but so we know what needs to be done. What do you think? And and then maybe also to Maureen afterwards. What are the barriers of of uh, of why this is not uh, manifesting itself? If it's the right thing to do?
0: Well, I think the barriers are um, are complicated and simple both at the same time. Um, <laughs> First, I think that this basket of issues has for far too long languished as though it were just a woman's issue, and that it's not fundamentally and critically important to most, most if not all, families, and profoundly important to the economy. Um, you know, even when I hear people talk about it, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, there's that thing. And it's like, no, this is about people being able to get into work and be highly productive in a world where we no longer have that um, that stay at home caregiver. This is a set of policies that every family needs. So I think you know first is that because it's about care, I think it tends to be dismissed too quickly as something ancillary to the really important stuff of the economy. And I'm sort of like making a face here as I say that, which you can't see on the podcast, but. Um, I think that's a really key issue. You know, and one thing to kind of note is that, you know, we have this set of social policies that provide the boundaries over time and provide the basic social insurance that we have in um, at the federal level um, through the Family, um, the, the, the Social Security Act and the Fair Labor State Standards Act. Um, and those laws were put in place in the 1930s. At a time when most families had a stay-at-home caregiver, at a time when women had only gotten the vote a decade, uh, you know, 15 years earlier. So um, I think that we need to rethink that because we live in a different world. And too often, I think we hear that, well, those are the standard. We don't need to add anything to it as though those should be the standard for all time. And we live in a different world and we need to adjust to the fact that women are at work. But the second reason, um, besides taking women's employment, women and women's employment seriously and the need to uh, deal with care, is, um, is an economic argument that fails to see um, uh, the big economic picture. Um, you know, uh, in the book, I talk a lot, I get a lot, give a lot of examples of people who dismiss these ideas because um, they only think about the immediate short-term cost um, for a single business, rather than seeing the overall economic effects of the lack of taking these actions. And that kind of economic thinking isn't just in this field, um, but we see this throughout um, in sort of the D.C. policy-making circles. You hear a lot about um, what's good for the economy, and as it turns out, when you scratch the surface of that model, it's really what's good for one firm's bottom line today Without understand, without thinking about the economy, that is, how does this policy affect not just um, a firm's costs today, but the firm's long-term costs and productivity and labor supply and labor demand, and so I think part of the reason we haven't done this is because we've been living with this very myopic economic model, and part of what I do in the book is try to really expand our thinking on that. Uh, it's it Maureen
2: yeah well i was just going to say i think i think that that's um i i was just going to add a little bit i think that um yes that uh you know because you were asking about the barriers and i think heather's outlined you know several of sort of why we have a hard time having a, a common you know understanding of the of this challenge and and i think um there are just a couple other things i also i also wanted to to note about it um you know, we've we've been having this conversation in the U.S. about sort of economic inequality and lack of economic mobility, and we see that there's great differences in opportunity across geographic areas and differences in, in whether there's economic mobility across geographic areas. And, and then within even, you know, cities, neighborhood by neighborhood, there's very big geographic differences. So, so earlier I was saying we have these different lived experiences, and it's different lived experiences in terms of where we physically live in our neighborhoods. And then we also have a tremendous level of occupational segregation, right? But women tend to have different jobs than men. Um, we see African-Americans and Hispanics in, in different jobs than, than whites, you know, sort of dominating different jobs than whites. So so because of these ways that we are divided, I think we have a different picture of what the problem is and, and and what to do about it. And so what we see is, you know, sort of these challenges at work and from low quality work in particular, um, uh, you know, disproportionately affect women. They disproportionately affect blacks and Hispanics, and they disproportionately affect young people. And, you know, their voices are not necessarily heard in sort of the policy debates about what to do um, on economic issues or they're not um, given a lot of credibility. That experience of their, their experience of work isn't sort of seen as, as credible maybe as a, as a business leader. So I think that we have some sort of cultural challenges in who we're hearing and who we're not and what experiences sort of carry more weight um, in terms of our, our debate about what's appropriate policy and what, what are appropriate um, ways to organize work.
1: Yes, and, and maybe for the benefit of Heather and also for the listeners, it's it totally ties in actually how we met with Maureen. We met in January this year at, in Paris at the OECD Forum on the Future of Work, and there was one panel that was exploring the future of work and what it would look like, and these were all 50-plus uh, white men, <laughs> and there was a, a Twitter wall, uh, very visible on, on the wall actually, and... And the only woman on stage was the moderator and and me including uh, people participants started to tweet okay and where are the women so she felt she had to the moderator had to ask this question to the panel and and um i mean kudos to her she did and then the the answer so she has so what about women what about women's issues and and uh, so i hope heather you're holding on to your chair but what they said was well women have household responsibilities <laughs> so i think that the issue of of what you say you know about the american wife or you know it's it's still the men are basically have to conform to the ideal worker model in a work sphere that was designed by men and for men and women who work they have to still conform to this ideal wife and housemaker homemaker uh model at the same time also you know you know be in the ideal worker mold and so they're failing at both and and i think i just couldn't agree more with both both of your arguments about you know having the voices heard and and so um maybe we could just move on to to uh, perhaps the last before last question is, is how do you think we can um, amplify the voices um, of everyone in this and how could we uh, move on and and make it, you know, become a work life movement and not just, you know, what you said, a a marginal discussion or a women's issue? I don't know. Maureen, would you maybe like to take this first? Sure. I mean, I think that that's an excellent question. And
2: I think you know I don't want to be all all, all pessimistic because I do think <laughs> I I see in some of the you know local areas that I've I've done some work where they really are trying to bring sort of a a, a cross uh, sector cross uh, experience conversation together as a civic conversation so that the the first step is is hearing what are people's different experiences of work why isn't. Uh, work working for everybody and then what does that mean we need to do from a regulatory approach what does that mean we need just in terms of engaging businesses around what are better business models and are there opportunities to think about what are business models that can still build successful businesses but also create better work experiences Um, what are opportunities for uh, you know, other civic institutions to play a role in sort of supporting people and bringing stability to to work, um, and you know, where are there um, uh, roles for different sectors to play in sort of at least in the within the American system? Those those sectors all play important roles, and 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 I I think that I have seen you know sort of within the context of cities and towns, and I think it's interesting. In Heather's book, I think a lot of her the policy solutions where she's seen things move forward. It has been at a more local or state level, um, where I think mm. you're able to start to, if you're intentional about trying to bridge some of the gaps, you can start to maybe build a, a, at least enough political will to to move something forward. But Heather, uh, I should turn it over to you to comment on that.
0: Well, I I mean. I think that one of the most exciting things that's going on in American politics is actually the energy around this basket of issues. Um, and. You know, it's it's funny, I, I, I live and work here in Washington, D.C., and I know a lot of people that work on different policy issues, and I feel like um, for the past, you know, few years, I've been the only optimistic one at many a dinner party, because my <laughs> issues are moving, and it's, and it's exciting, and we're seeing it finally, um, we're seeing people sitting up and take notice. Um, this year in the presidential primaries, you actually heard paid uh, family and medical leave and issues around universal child care be actually live debate issues um, that people talked about um, and debated on, on television, like not a marginal issue where there was just a fact sheet sent out or something, but a live debate, and I think that's a testament. Um, I think the fact that you've seen so much progress at the state and local level and that it has been so... Um, uh, successful and that people think this is such the right thing to do, um, has made people sit up and go, Oh, wow. Well, maybe, maybe if politicians or if advocates take up these issues, they will be, um, successful in making some, some progress on things that really affect people's lives in a positive way. Um, so I can, I know that, um, I was accused a couple weeks ago of sounding a little too, um, Pollyanna-ish on this, but, um, A little too optimistic but i do think that there's a lot of evidence that uh that there is there is excitement around these issues and that we're making a lot of progress and that those voices are starting to be raised up i think that the proof is in the pudding though can we um, continue to show that these are important to people they are good for businesses they are good for the economy and we can implement them and i think that continues to be our challenge
1: Mm. Now, um, before we go to our last question, um, maybe I can ask Heather to, and then Maureen to to just uh, tell listeners where they can reach you, where they can find uh, your book, Heather, where they can get in touch with the both of you?
0: Oh, certainly. Um, So, I run an organization called the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Um, we are investigating whether and how inequality affects economic growth and stability, and um, you can find information on my book and all the work we do at um, www.equitablegrowthalloneword.org.
1: Maureen? And uh,
2: I'm Maureen Conway, I run the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute. Um, and we do applied research on local strategies that are creating economic opportunity for people. We uh, also do public conversations to try to bring diverse voices together around what are some of the critical issues people face at work today. Um, You can find out about everything we do on the Aspen Institute's website, which is www.aspeninstitute.org. And you can also send us a note at E-O-P at Institute.org
1: Thank you. And we will, of course, put um, these uh, information and and the contacts and, and you know the links also into the show notes of the podcast. Now, coming to the last question, we always ask the same last question on our work-life podcast. And that is, if you could give one advice to a CEO to make a difference in You know the well-being and the work-life balance of his or her employees, what would that be? Um, But I will leave it up to the both of you if you want to tweak this question a little bit and maybe give some advice to the presidential candidates. (laughs) But I would be quite, you know, very interested in, in hearing from the both of you, you know, what is for you kind of the priority issue? What would be your first advice if... You would need to maybe advise. You can choose uh, a municipality of a town, or a mayor, or a president, or a CEO. So I don't know, Maureen, would you like to take this first?
2: Sure, I'll I'll start and I'll I'll do I'll say a couple things on the on the CEO side, I guess, what, because there there are two things that that um, uh, come to mind. I've spent a, a lot of time in uh, in particular thinking about how people can. Uh, qualify for jobs and connect to jobs and build skills for jobs. But the thing I'd like CEOs to think about when they think about um, workforce skills, and many of them are concerned about workforce skills, is that skills don't happen without all of these other um, pieces in, in place, right? So investment in workforce skills doesn't just mean training and learning or sending people to college. It It, it means also making sure that um, they're healthy making sure that they have the resources to care for their families and that they're able to show up regularly and on time and and not be worried about where are their kids or is there is there um uh heat going to be shut off or uh, it's getting to the end of the month and these are these are the things that i that are sort of the big four that people who make thirty thousand dollars a year or less in some communities it's it's food it's um uh, child care it's uh, issues related to housing and transportation are all challenges that people face. So, what can you as a, an employer do for your entry level workers to build stability into their life so they can bring stability into your company? So, that's something that, that I, I think of, of first. And then, and then, but really, the first thing I would say is ask them. Um, mm-hmm. Find a way that you can set up a, a better communication so that they can honestly tell you what would make work better for them.
1: Absolutely, so that they can bring their whole selves to work. Yeah. They can be their whole selves, and and you know, with anything else that comes with them, and and I think that they will thank you a hundredfold for any employer who would who would really acknowledge basically these these difficulties. Heather. Well, I think
0: that's um, that th- that's a great set of issues. It also underscores the importance. Um, of the fact that most workers today don't have a, a protected voice at work, um, because most U.S. workers, uh, over nine out of ten in the private sector, are no longer represented by a union. Um, so that's that's one way that we can make sure that people um, that that what people want is heard is that we can encourage employers to not see unions as, as the enemy. Um, I would. Um, Let me take the policy side, um, since Marine Tugmas sort of started a different place, and and, um, just to make it a little bit more uh, diverse here. um, I think that that the one thing is just really to acknowledge that because we live in this world where most families no longer have a stay-at-home caregiver, we need to help families address care so that they can get to work, so that they can support their families and be the kinds of consumers and community members and parents that they need to be, um, without a good job. Um, no family's going to, uh, get out of poverty unless they're independently wealthy. Um, and we need to make it possible for all kinds of families to be able to access good jobs in the labor market, um, and make that possible via both schedules and everything else that that needs to go along with it. I would say that, um, all there's a, there's a whole variety of things that are urgent and important to, to deal with there. But, um, Certainly one thing that we hear a lot about is the the need for families to have access to safe, affordable, and enriching child care and increasingly elder care. So in the U.S., um, access to, to quality care is prohibitively expensive, um, often unavailable, and um, there aren't good choices for a lot of families. And I think that Thinking about um, childcare the same way that we think about the public school system, it's important for everybody, it's important for every family, and it should be in every community, and it should be high quality, um, is certainly a first step. And we're seeing a lot of states and localities thinking about universal pre-kindergarten is one step in that direction, but we need to go a lot further further. Um, uh, on that, and we need to, to also be thinking about um, in an aging society with, again, no one, no stay-at-home caregivers for most families, um, how are people dealing with elder care issues, and how is that affecting labor supply? So I would push on the care substitutes, the, the ability to um, to uh, have someone to care for people that you love while you're at work as um, as the top priority.
1: Well, thank you very much to both of you, to Maureen and Heather, for taking the time, and it wasn't easy to have both of you at the same time, but I really, really appreciate it. And, and I think that listeners can take away a lot of inspiration from this conversation. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's thank been you. a real
0: pleasure.